Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Wait! Don't... don't turn it off yet! Uh, <laughs> I know this doesn't sound great. I am not in our usual studio today, but we had some really good content, and I wanted to get it out to you. So once we get to the content, it's gonna sound good. We recorded that real good. But this intro, eh, is just me talking to a laptop, because I'm really excited to share this project with you. So, like I said in our last episode, what you find yourself listening to right now is sort of a bonus season, where we're going to be giving you little pieces of episodic content as it's ready to share, and these are sort of teasers for an upcoming book. You see, currently, David and I are running an intro to Christian ethics at Mercer University's McAfee School of Theology. So, this will be David's last seminary-level intro to Christian ethics, and we're recording it, and we're binding it, and we're publishing it so that you can have 2021 Gushy's latest take on these issues, on these practices, on these methods, on Christian ethics. We want these things to be available to you, and we've gotten permission from our publishers to share about 10-minute chunks on this podcast as teasers for the project. So what I'm doing as we clean up and edit and have these big recordings, these videos of the lectures ready to go, I'm grabbing the best 10 minutes, or at least the most useful standalone 10 minutes I can find, and I'm sharing that here with you. Um, So I think this is really cool. I'm really excited. Today, I'm giving you a 13-minute clip from lecture number one. Uh, From here on, we probably won't go in order because we haven't recorded them in order. But uh, why not start with the beginning? So this is right in the middle of the lecture, honestly. It's right when David gets to the meat of ways to think about ethics. Not just simple, what is ethics? Rather, the big question And then, uh, how do we break that down into three uh, smaller questions? In this section, he'll talk about rules and goals and principles and get at some of the relational heart of the kind of ethics we're doing here. I hope you enjoy this episode. So, one might say that the discipline of ethics as an intellectual inquiry examines not just the standards that human beings develop and practice concerning their character and behavior toward themselves and others, but also reflects on the nature of this human species that is faced with developing these standards. And and on this open, conflicted world which requires this hard work of each of us. In that sense, it doesn't take long for ethics to edge toward questions of philosophy and theology. I want to call your attention to three distinctions I have not yet focused on, but that are embedded in the basic definition we have been considering. These are the distinction between character and behavior, between standards and practices, and between ourselves and others. Mainly, when we think about morality and moral norms, our focus goes to behavior. Do not steal. Give to the poor. Tell the truth. These are moral norms that prescribe what we are supposed to do and what we are supposed to refrain from doing. Things that we are supposed to do are sometimes called moral obligations. 
things that we must not do are often called moral prohibitions. The combination of positive moral obligations and negative moral prohibitions can be said to constitute the moral rules which we believe should govern our moral lives. But there is a way of looking at morality that focuses not so much on what we do or on what the rules are, but on who we are. The term for this is moral character. Moral character, the qualities that mark or distinguish an individual or a people over time. Moral constitution, temperament, and distinctive virtues and vices. We'll do an entire lecture on this later, so for now we will simply say that one of ethics' oldest insights is that human actions seem to flow from human character, like leaves and branches from a tree trunk. There is a moral core or essence to people that solidifies over time and tends to demonstrate itself in a wide range of actions. If this is so, anyone interested in affecting human behavior should attend to the moral core and not just its expressions in particular actions. Thus begins the trail toward character or virtue ethics. These are theories or traditions that emphasize the formation of character and the development of virtue, morally good character traits, as central to the moral life. The second distinction between standards and practices is easy to grasp with a bit of reflection. I can establish or accept a standard that I should love my enemies or give to the poor, but I might very well fall short in practicing that standard. Or I can establish a moral norm of treating all people with kindness and become manifestly aware that in my actual practices towards some people I am failing to do so. Ethics examines morality, this we have established. The striking gap between standards and practices is one of the very things that ethics must examine. What is it about us as human beings that makes it difficult for us to do what we believe we ought to do? Is the gap between standards and practices inevitable? Does it exist because we have set the wrong standards? Or is it because we somehow cannot muster whatever energy or moral will or changed habits or better character that might be needed to close the gap? Part of the moral conflict that we will examine in this study of ethics is that which is internal to the moral self or group in that sometimes indescribably painful conflict between the moral norms we have adopted and the practices that we actually perform. Then there's the distinction between ourselves and others. When we reflect on the world and establish moral norms, to whom do these norms apply? If I, David Gushy, arrive at a moral norm, for example, one that states that marriage should be understood to be a lifetime commitment. That's a moral norm statement. If I arrive at such a statement does, or belief, does that norm apply to me only or to others as well? Who decides what the moral standard should be and for which groups? This issue inevitably gets us into the vicinity for the first time of the question of power in ethics. Here the question is, who has the power to determine moral norms? How far does that power stretch? This also helps us open the conversation about the fact that moral agents establishing moral standards do so not just as individuals, but in various social contexts, including families, schools, religious groups, clubs, cities, nations, and the world. A significant part of ethics is the moral discernment process. 
This is moral perception, moral decision-making. And this moral discernment process involves groups, not just individuals. And it's also about what happens when groups with different moral standards bump up against each other or must try to live in community with each other in the world. So the key questions of ethics, next section. One way to deepen our reflection on the moral dimension of human experience is to break it down into the most common questions that people tend to ask within the most significant areas of life. I, I now like to describe this as the one big question and then the six not so little questions that follow from the one big question. Some parts of life, such as what color socks you wear today, are not morally significant. So these are off the table. The classic old term in ethics for morally insignificant questions or issues or areas is adiaphora, a great old Greek term. So we're not talking about adiaphora. The one big question in the moral arena is how should I live or how should we live? How should I live? This can be framed as broadly or as narrowly as one's concerns on a given day. Perhaps on an existentially searching day over a cup or bowl or pipe, you might find yourself asking this question in relation to the whole of your life. How should I live my life? If so, prepare for a long day. Probably most often you and I will be asking this question in relation to a very specific issue, context or relationship. How should I live in relation to money? How should I live in relation to violence, in relation to politics, in relation to my mother? Ethics examines the answers that people give to the question, how shall I or we live? This is the one big question and it has exercised the minds and hearts of pretty much every human being at one time or another. How should I live? But it's also possible to break this one big question down into several smaller questions. All of these are morally significant questions. We rarely ask them all, certainly not all at the same time. Whether we find ourselves inclined to ask one or another of these questions provides important clues to the ways our moral sensibilities have developed, either from within us or from how we were raised. So here are the six not-so-little questions that flow from the one big question with a few comments about each. So the first, what are the rules? What are the rules? Human beings very often perceive the existence of moral rules that ought to govern our lives. Or if we do not perceive such rules, we seek them out and try to develop them. And of course, we enter a moral world that already exists and is filled with plenty of rules. You must do your homework before you can go play. You must wash your hands before supper. You must go to church every Sunday. You must never tell a lie, and so on. Moral rules. We will develop some vocabulary around moral rules in a later lecture, but for now, let us just begin by saying that one way to ask the one big question, how should I live? is to break it down to the smaller question, what are the rules that should or will govern how I should live? The comforting thing about reducing morality to rules is that rules tend to be clear, direct, and unambiguous. They tell us directly what to do or, or what to refrain from doing. Moral uncertainty is troubling and in some cases agonizing. Having rules to tell us exactly how we should live removes a great deal of uncertainty. But of course, 
It also introduces its own problems, such as what if we can't agree on what the rules are or what they should be? What if we can't figure out which moral rule applies? What if moral rules conflict with each other? What if no one has ever made up a moral rule about this kind of situation before? These perhaps surprising complexities and potential limits related to moral rules have helped lead many ethicists to argue that the better question in the moral life is the second one, what are the goals? Not what are the rules, but what are the goals? What ends, aims, or purposes should I or we seek to achieve in life overall or in relation to this or that morally significant area of life? Once we then determine morally worthy goals to pursue, then the right course of action tends to be do that which most clearly advances progress toward those goals. Some aspects of the moral life do seem better addressed by the goals question than by the rules question. Let's say a core goal of your life is, I want to be a loving spouse, if you're married. You wake up each morning and remind yourself of this goal. That should then set you on a daily path of trying to discern what being a loving spouse requires of you. It's not about adhering to rules in that case, but instead seeking to live in the direction of this morally substantial and very important goal. One can easily make the case, as many have, that rules are subordinate to goals. For teachers, our fundamental goal is or ought to be to offer great education to students in our area of instruction. That's the goal. Every academic course lists learning objectives that aim to fulfill this broader goal. The rules that are also listed on a course syllabus, and they tend to be plentiful, often established by institutions and we have to cut and paste and put them in the syllabus, right? These rules do not exist as an end in themselves. They exist or ought to exist as a means to the greater end of offering a great course, of offering great education. Many smart ethicists have argued that when rule thinking gets out of hand, people can come to forget the reasons why the rules are there in the first place. But the rule thinkers can then easily counter by saying that goal thinkers can sometimes play fast and loose with the rules that provide order and fairness to most human endeavors. A third question asks, what serves the needs of people and relationships? So the first question was, what are the rules? second question is, what are the goals? This one is, what serves the needs of people and relationships? This third question only came into focus in ethics through the efforts of modern feminist thinkers. This question decenters rules and goals and centers care for people and relationships. The keen insight embedded in this question is this, morality is a social concern. Moral, moral questions and challenges arise in relationships. The more important the relationship is to us, the more urgent will be or should be our sense that we need to act in such a way as to care well for the people that we love and to protect the relationships that we most value. As I write, I've entered a stage in life in which I have substantial responsibilities of care for my 90-year-old father who lives in an independent living community and whose health is fragile. When I wake up each day, one of the questions never far from my mind is this, what do I need to do today to take care of my father? And this, what actions do I need to take that will demonstrate how much I value him in our relationship? 
This third question suggests, at least implicitly, that the most important moral questions are actually relational questions. Morality arises in relational contexts. There are a few, but not many, moral questions that are solely individual. Whatever rules we establish or goals that we set had best be situated to benefit others and preserve or even enhance relationships.